Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello everyone, this is Rob Jones and welcome to this 20 Questions podcast. Now I've been lucky enough to meet and interview a host of famous people over the years and ask them the same 20 questions. I also ask them what their favourite five pieces of music are. We're not allowed to play music on this podcast but uh, I always think it's interesting to hear what they choose. The interviews took place some time ago so some things are quite dated. But on this podcast we feature a man who divides opinion on many levels. A former politician and best-selling author. As ever, our first question is, what is your name? Jeffrey Archer. And welcome. Thank you, Jeffrey. Rob. Thank Very you. nice to have you here. Uh, so question number two, it sounds straightforward, but is it? What do you do? Well, my life at the moment is pretty well all writing. My new book, uh, Mightier Than the Sword, comes out a week today. And um, so I suppose I would say 75% of my life is writing. My hobby and my love, as well as writing, is being a charity auctioneer. I get terrific fun. That's my fun hobby. And, of course, I love the theatre uh, and I love sport. And what does it say on your passport? What, what's, what's your profession on the passport there? It just says member of the House of Lords, I think, because it's an old passport. Right. I mean, you have them for 10 years. Uh, I still am a member of the House of Lords, but I think I think actually under profession it says author. And politician, did it say it sometime? Uh, yes, and I still have a fascination by it, and I'd go as far as saying I think the next election will be the most incredible in my lifetime. Uh, whereas when I worked with Margaret Thatcher and John Major, I was actually able to sit with them privately and say... Uh, Prime Minister, I think you'll win by 120. Prime Minister, I think you'll win by 30. Prime Minister, I think you'll lose by 150. I haven't got a blooming clue what's going to happen in the next election. And if I was advising the Prime Minister, because I was in charge of the marginal seats, if I was advising the Prime Minister, I wouldn't have a blooming clue. It's going to be fascinating, isn't oh, it? Oh, it's going to... It's been one of those... You'll see seats you thought would go one way, they go the other. It's, it's, it's 400 by-elections are going on. I must ask you about Thatcher later on, but uh, let's go back to question three now. Where did you grow up, Geoffrey? In the Western Supermare in Somerset. I'm a West Country boy. That's where I come from, my dear. That's why I support Somerset Cricket Club and Bristol Rovers. Uh, so that's where I was brought up, 
uh, with a wonderful... My father died when I was young with a wonderful mother who uh, went out and did four jobs, which, of course, I didn't know at that age, was doing four jobs to make sure I could stay at the little school I was at, devoted everything, God bless her, made it possible for me to get semi-educated because she felt that was the most important thing of all and uh, I'm grateful for that the rest of my life. Uh, so Western Supermare in the West Country of England. Siblings? No, um, an only child brought up with my mother and father in a tiny flat uh, in South Road, Western Supermare. Happy childhood? Very. Uh, I thought I could conquer the world. And uh, did? At, at, <laughs> at three, I wanted to be four. At four, I wanted to be prime minister and <laughs> nothing was going to stop me except uh, the real world. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And school? What about school? You went to Wellington. I went right? to a little school in Somerset called Wellington, which has suddenly become a very good academic establishment. It wasn't in my day. It's suddenly become a uh, really rather impressive uh, academic establishment. A very nice school. I, I went back and gave away the prizes there a few years back. And it's a, it's a nice middle-class school. And that's what it was then, and that's what it is now. And is that where the writing bug hit you? Well, I hadn't. English master called Alan Quilter, who certainly gave me my love of theatre, certainly gave me my love of Shakespeare, and certainly gave my love of reading and words. And indeed, when he went on to be headmaster uh, of Wells Cathedral School, and I went and spoke for him as well, and I, and I dedicated one of the books to him. So there isn't any doubt that his love of literature and his love of the theatre uh, got through to me in a big way and I will be grateful to him forever and and didn't leave him in any doubt that I was grateful for him. But he was the first to say, there's a very big difference between being a writer and a storyteller. Yes, he gave me the love of all those things, but if you're what the Irish call a shanaki, you're a storyteller. Um, by when they say Shanaki, they mean even someone who sits on a street corner and tells a tale. Uh, it's That is a gift. Great, great writers are normally very well educated, very well taught, very well read. Storytellers are born. And he gave you a love of musical theatre as well, by the sound of it. Yes, love of the theatre. Uh, I played in all the school plays and indeed thought about being an actor before leaving school. Um never thought about being a writer, and then went into politics. Acting politics? Quite early. Well, it's, there's, it's, it's, it's what did that cruel person say, whoever it was who said it, that politics is for not very good-looking people who can't get to Hollywood. <laughs> I think that's very cruel, but probably quite accurate. Well, that takes us to your first musical choice, the musical theatre element, and uh, tell us about this. Well, it's my wife's favourite musical, um, Guys and Dolls, we saw this at the National Theatre with Bob Hoskins playing uh, the wicked, wonderful villain. And this particular number, I, I asked the director afterwards whether they, it got um, an encore every night. And he said, you know, what happened, Jeffrey, is we opened the show and it just got standing ovation every night. So we thought, rub it. What we'll do is we'll just do it as part of the show. We'll do it twice. That's how wonderful it was at the National Theatre, and uh, it's one of my favourite numbers. You're listening to 20 Questions with Geoffrey Archer. And here's question number four, Geoffrey. What's your most treasured possession? Very awkward to answer that question, because is it something that's very, very valuable? Or is it something that just has 
a sentimental value. Uh, I did an auction for Ian Botham, and he gave me as a gift uh, the the bat he scored the famous century with. I raised them a hundred thousand pounds for his amazing leukemia charity because uh, I love auctioneering. And he gave me the bat, and I gave it back. Uh, so it was my possession only, I'm afraid, for a couple of weeks. I said, no, I think we ought to auction this. It's too important. I don't think it should be living in my home. And then the late Donald Sindon, the great actor, great thespian, who was, gave Mary the most wonderful Eric Gill, great, great artist and a great, great sculptor. And it was so kind of him. He'd given it to his wife and his wife died. And then he, he rang Mary and said, I'm going to die and I want you to have it. And so we have that, and we're going to leave that to the Eric Gill Museum because we feel we should only have it for our lifetime. We shouldn't have it any longer. So those two possessions, the one my wife has of the Eric Gill and the one I had for 10 minutes, the bat that Ian Botham scored the famous century with, uh, were very special to me, very special. Question number five, difficult one this, Happiest day of your life? Well, you know, you very kindly, Rob, sent me the questions. And, of course, you know, it's so easy, isn't it, to say the day my first son was born, the day we were married. Funnily enough, Mary and I were on honeymoon in Dublin. We chose to to do uh, Ireland for our honeymoon. It's such a lovely country. And uh, I got a telegram saying, come home. You've been chosen to run for Great Britain. Uh, get back on <laughs> so, so our honeymoon was properly messed up so that I could run for my country. So I think probably, in a way, that was a very unusual and exciting day, not only to be with my wife, but to be uh, to be asked to run for my country. Sport's very important to you, isn't oh, it? Oh, I love it. I, I'm a competitor by nature. I want to be number one in anything I do. Can't do anything about it. Uh, it's no use saying, grow up, Jeffrey. It's too late. Here's question number six to Geoffrey Archer. Um, what are you scared of? I think I'm probably, th- I'd be physically scared of some a big person with a knife, you know. <laughs> I, yes, I, I'd be scared of that. I'm not scared of much mentally um, because I worked with Margaret Thatcher for 11 years, so I know what tough is, uh, and that didn't frighten me. I enjoyed it, in fact. Uh, but I'd be physically scared of a big human being with no brain who was just <laughs> charging towards you, and I couldn't use my tongue to control him. <laughs> Thatcher, you mentioned there, a remarkable woman. A very, I was very fortunate to meet her once, and I don't think I've met anyone in my life with as much charisma for a relatively small lady. Uh, yes. Massive charisma. Yeah, but a bundle of energy, and what came over was, you're quite right, what came over is this passion for what she was doing and this... Everybody, you would have been, for for that moment, the most important person in her life, and you'd have felt it. You'd have felt that strength, and it came over all the time. I, She divided opinion. I still have friends who won't have her name mentioned in public, and then I still have friends who think she was the greatest prime minister of the last century. Where, I had you, where little, are you on her? Well, I had 11 years with her, so I knew her very well, and I had the privilege of running the campaign for the marginal seats for her and then after she resigned we went to Japan to do a big tour together and uh, I w- worked with her very closely and I would say uh, there w- I was never it was never not thrilling to be with her thrilling and Mary and I used to go and see her towards the end it was very sad of course we used to go and sit with her 
and chat about old stories. And uh, it's very funny when she get, got cross with me once, I started calling her prime minister again. <laughs> you know, we were having a row about finance, the Russians, how to deal with the Russians, how to handle their financial to cut off their finance, and we were having a row, and I suddenly, I don't agree with you, Prime Minister. And she said, well, I'm going to change it, and she didn't realise she wasn't Prime Minister, and I'd got back in the habit. Yeah. You go 11 years calling someone Prime Minister, and you suddenly announced tomorrow, Rob, you weren't called Rob, you were called Harry. You'd find it very hard for your friends to all be calling you Harry, and so we went 11 years calling her Prime Minister, so it got very hard to call her Margaret, or very hard to not get used to the fact. She was she of a time... I, or could it? Could she do it again? If you know, if she was in her prime again, would she make it? Work I think now? people are born or in their it? time. I accept that. That's not a bad argument. But I think she was so great that she would have adapted to whatever she was. If she'd been born at the time of Winston Churchill, she'd have played that role. Uh, if she'd been born now, she'd play. She'd play it differently. Of course, she would. She was. She was very able to adapt. She was very good at that. But yes, she was born. She was right for the time. The British yes. people wanted someone like that in the way the German people wanted Merkel. In the same way, they wanted that sort of strong character who will govern and get on with it. Uh, and maybe you don't always agree, but let her get on with it. And stronger than many a man. Oh, very much more. But then I've been brought up with three very strong women. My mother was very strong. My wife is remarkably strong. Now chairman, of course, of the... Science Museum, a terrific job to have, and Margaret Thatcher. So I've been surrounded by powerful and strong women and enjoyed it. I, I absolutely like it. I've always believed in equality. I've always thought it slightly farcical that we think we're as good as they are. But <laughs> it is. <laughs> so you'll think I'm leading you into question number seven now. Who was your hero? Living or dead? Oh, either, either. Uh, I went to a memorial service yesterday for Sir Tommy McPherson. So Tommy won three military crosses behind enemy lines. He escaped from prisoner of war camp three times. He won three croix de guerres. And Giscard d'Estaing flew over to attend the memorial service. That's how highly he was regarded in France. Scotsman, of course, but how highly he was regarded in France. He won a knighthood. Uh, he then went back after the war to Oxford and got a first-class honours degree uh, in the classics. I mean, this is not a normal man. I knew him for 60 years. When I was a child at Oxford, he was the sort of over-figure in charge. So I knew him for 60 years. I don't think I've met a finer man in my life, ever. And I don't think I'll ever meet a finer man in my life. He was the straightest, honest, straight as an arrow. Uh, you don't get three military crosses unless you're brave beyond common sense. And you don't get a first uh, in the classics unless you're bright. But he was also a lovely, lovely human being, and it was an honour to be at his memorial service yesterday, and uh, I would consider him the man in my lifetime I've most admired. Interesting. Let's have another piece of music. What are we going to have next? We're going on to the great Sammy Davis Jr., who I saw both in Los Angeles and at the Grosvenor House in London. I couldn't believe it when he told Mary and myself that he couldn't work in Miami because they still didn't want black people. I mean, I just... Doesn't it seem so grotesque now? And I remember sitting thinking, but wait a moment, you're the most talented entertainer on earth. No, no, he said, I'm black. He said, by the way, I'm five foot three. And by the way, I'm Jewish. And by the way, I'm not very good looking. <laughs> it was very funny about the whole thing. And by the way, I said, you're the most talented person on earth. And picking, I mean, I love watching him dance. I love watching him do anything. 
But this particular song, I think you aren't left in any doubt of his amazing talent, The Birth of the Blues. No music on this podcast, but here's another question to Geoffrey Archer. Um, silly question now, Geoffrey. Number eight. What did you do yesterday? Uh, I had quite a hectic day yesterday because uh, it began with the memorial service uh, for Sir Tommy McPherson, which, of course, one saw so many old friends. What was interesting about who was there was there were the, there were the army side. Of course, I didn't know them from Adam. There was the Scottish side. I didn't know them. But there were the athletic side. So one saw a lot of great old athletes from my era who worshipped uh, and adored him. Uh, and then in the evening, and I went back, uh, Mary spent the afternoon. She had a more interesting day than I did because she came to the memorial service as well. Uh, but then she went on to show Stephen Hawking around the Science Museum. Uh, of course, he knows the Science Museum very well indeed, but she's the new chairman. And the lady had won a prize, and her prize was to go round the Science Museum with Stephen Hawking. So Mary, as chairman, took them round and she said it was thrilling, absolutely thrilling to be with the great man and to go around the museum she's now has the privilege of being in charge of and show him the new things since he last came and be with this wonderful lady from the United States of America who won the prize to meet him and go around the museum with her. What a great prize that is. And here's number nine. And I know you like your telephone because it's sitting here on the table. Uh, who was the last person you spoke to on the telephone? I spoke to a dear old friend this morning called Henry Toynier, because I, uh, I, 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 he's brilliant on London restaurants and where to go. And uh, a friend is flying in from the United States, wants to go to a Japanese restaurant. I don't care for Japanese food that much. So the last person I spoke to was Henry, who I rang up and said, please tell me a Japanese restaurant that's not too expensive. And he wrote, he sent back an immediate email saying, uh, that's not possible, Jeffrey. All Japanese restaurants are expensive, but here's a list. <laughs> Excellent. Now, we must talk about the new book. Uh, and this is part of a, a series of, of books, isn't it? Tell I've me, written tell seven me books called, the, well, I haven't written the seven yet. I'm writing seven books called The Clifton Chronicles. The first was Only Time Will Tell, and I've been doing one a year for the last five years. This is number five, Mightier Than the Sword. It's always a very oh, tricky time for any author because you're not sure what the critics are going to say. Do you They're, care? Uh, well, I do care, and they've recently been very generous. I mean, I've had some very generous critics lately, people saying, you know, he is a storyteller. You should never forget that. No, I am not uh, Nadim Godama. No, I am not Salman Rushdie. But that isn't what I want to be. I want to be an entertainer. And you clearly are. The books have been very successful for very many years. So there you are, very successful author. And then you dive into the world of politics and all that comes with that and the criticism and the yes. hard words. And, and and it's getting worse. When I look at what's happening with David Cameron, Ed Miliband and uh, Clegg, I th I, it's just getting so vicious, so unpleasant, you think. I, and I hate this negative advertising. It's just personal it. now, isn't it? I hate it. Oh, he's not up to the job. He's second rate. I hate it. What about the things they've achieved? What about the things they've done? What about the fact they're willing to give public service? I think we live in a very... I hate it. We've got this from America. You're the presidential candidates now. Do nothing except slag off the other side. They don't say why they should be the president. They say why the other person shouldn't be the president. Well, that's... If we're going that way in England, I'm very, very sorry. To be describing uh, Ed Miliband as your worst nightmare and then putting a picture of him 
next to salmon saying, and here's an even worse nightmare. I think it's actually disgusting. I think uh, Ed Miliband is clearly a highly intelligent man, highly sophisticated man, and dedicated wanting to give service. That also applies to David Cameron because it equally annoys me when people forget they say, oh, David Cameron went to Eton. Well, wait a moment. He won a scholarship to Eton and then went to Oxford and got a first-class honours degree. If you get win a scholarship to Eton and you get a first-class honours degree, is that to be a disqualification for going into public life? I hate it, is the answer to your question. We should be praising both men for their achievements, not just knocking them the whole time. Here's question number 10 now to Geoffrey Archer. Have you got any awards? Well, in the Athletics Day, um, you mean ones I keep on the wall and I'm proud of? <laughs> in the Athletics Day, there were a few, thank heavens, because I uh, won the England University Championship and, and uh, there have been one or two. But yes, I have five book awards. Um, I recently won international author, uh, in Ireland. I went over to Dublin to receive it a few weeks ago. I have three French awards. The French love storytellers. They think Dumas is to be taken seriously and not to be dismissed. Uh, I have no awards in England. I have three in France, one in Germany, uh, one in Ireland, and none in England. And I suspect I never will win one in England. But that's fine. I have no complaints. So here's question number 11 now to Geoffrey Archer. What is your signature dish? Well, I, I would say I am the world's leading expert on shepherd's pie. There is <laughs> no one who knows better shepherd's pie than I do. I give it at my parties. I love it. People give it to me kindly all over the world. Whenever I arrive, they do me a shepherd's pie. I love shepherd's pie. And being a Western Supermare boy, I love fish and chips. We used to have a lovely uh, corner shop. It taught me about... It taught me about industry. There were two fish and chip shops next to each other in Western Supermare. One was called Coffins, which was sold out the entire time. You couldn't get anywhere near the place where you got fish and chips for a bob, 5p. And I was in that queue. The next door, nobody queuing at all. And it taught me about industry. You know, why, why has this shop got a queue and this shop not got a queue? Because the prices were the same. The difference was Coffins gave you the most wonderful fish and chips. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Great name as well. Number 12. Four people, dead or alive, that you would invite to your dinner party. And I know you used to give fabulous summer parties, didn't you? I love my parties. I would like... Um, Do you still throw them? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And Christmas parties, champagne and shepherd's pie parties, yeah. Although I don't drink champagne myself. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, who I think is probably uh, the most cosmopolitan person I would like to meet. I mean, is a... There's nothing that man couldn't do. John Kennedy said of him when dining in the White House with eight Nobel Prize winners, this is the greatest gathering of intellect since Thomas Jefferson dined alone, <laughs> which I think rather he was a polymath in every sense. So, yes, I love Love, obviously, to have met Lincoln as well. Uh, why did the United States produce these two monumental giants when they were not a country of any great significance and now seem unable to produce giants when they're the most important nation on earth fools me a bit uh i'd like catherine the great there because of my love of art and the fact she stole pictures from britain and for everyone else and her own people criticized her and they've now got uh something uh, in uh, st petersburg which happens to just be arguably the greatest art gallery on earth the hermitage because of catherine the great uh, she was evidently very sexy as well, but not unknown for killing her lovers if they got if they became troublesome. But so I'd, I'd uh, I would uh, very much uh, like to meet her. Of modern heroines, of course, Margaret would be one. But you see, if you're going to have one dinner party, I one had the privilege of dining with her. One would want to to meet people. My modern heroine, in a way, probably very politically different to me, is Emma Thompson. Uh, I. A human being who can win an Oscar for acting and win an Oscar for writing is no normal person. Uh, I think she must be staggered. Well, I am a huge fan, a huge admirer. And she's going to be at the um, English National Opera at the Coliseum in the very near future. And uh, I'll be first in the queue to see her. Let's have some more music. What are we choosing next, Jeffrey? Well, the next one on the list is an amazing combination. I heard it many years ago when I was in Sydney, visiting Sydney. Uh, two of the greatest artists. These are light artists here. We're not discussing Bach, Beethoven, Mozart. We're discussing genuine entertainment. A combination of Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong is just so wicked. It's so wicked because they clearly do adore each other. 
and he's not a bad trumpeter into the bargain. <laughs> 20 questions with Geoffrey Archer, number 13. You're well-travelled, obviously. If there was one place in the world that you'd recommend I would go to, where would that be? Well, recommend and not gone to myself, I think, I felt when I read that question. I feel guilty about not having done China. I feel I really ought to before I die, because Mary, Mary and I are discussing where we should go that we haven't done in our lifetime, and China is number one on the list. If I was to recommend to anyone listening to this program where to go, don't die without seeing St. Petersburg. It's a beautiful city. The Winter Palace and the Summer Palace are truly remarkable. In my view, the, the Summer Palace is every bit as beautiful as Versailles. It's, of course, based on Versailles, but it also has a remarkable art gallery. And the Hermitage is arguably the greatest art gallery on earth. My only warning would be that if you love art, I've now done it five times and I still haven't conquered it. Mary and I decided on the last trip, which was a couple of years ago, that we'd only do the Dutch collection within the Hermitage. It's that great a gallery. There is so much to see. But I think to die not having seen St. Petersburg would be a pity. Can I take you back to the writing? Because obviously we have, a, we have a new book here, uh, Mightier Than the Sword. What's your regime for writing? Are you very precise? Do you block out a portion of the day or does it go? do you go with the muse? I think go with the muse is a joke. Uh, I'm a totally disciplined person, so I'll have thought for a year before I sit down. So I know roughly what's coming. But I would rise at 5.30. I work 6 until 8. I can't do more than two hours... The concentration goes after about two hours and 20 minutes, goes, and the hand begins to feel very tired. I was tired. going to ask, is it... Well, I hand write, so it gets very tired indeed. Uh, and then I will go to breakfast and uh, have a bath and a shave and then go back and do 10 until 12. Then I come out and do an hour's walk, I have lunch, then another rest, and then back two until four, then another hour's walk and another probably watch a black and white movie, film, and then go and rest again and then do six until eight. Then I have a light supper, uh, probably got a box set. Uh, I went through um, House of Cards this time, saw every episode, good, the new American it? version, loved it. And uh, uh, then I'll go to bed about 9.30, maybe 10. That regime I've just finished, I got back last week, it took, I did 46 days, 350 hours, and walked 250 miles. <laughs> so, yes, it is discipline, but that's the way I like it. If you want to drink a Guinness and be uh, upstairs in the attic uh, popping pills, that's fine. That will suit you. That's, that's great. Doesn't suit me. I always say to any author, do what suits you. Mary can write for five hours without stopping. I can't. That's amazing. So about 46 days to do a book the of The first about draft. Okay. So uh, 14 drafts in all. Long, 14 drafts. I would say a thousand hours a year. No, it's only the first draft for 350 hours. I wish I could hand it in at the first draft, but after that, I go back again and again and again, honing, honing, cutting, cutting, sharper, sharper, wanting you to turn the page. It's uh, if there was a shortcut, I'd take it. There isn't one. Your titles are always great. Mightier than the sword, being this new one. How do you come up with the titles? Uh, titles are weird. A lot of people are kind enough to say uh, that the title... But I, they, they can come way ahead of a book. They can come during a book. 
They can come even when you've handed it in. Cain and Abel came on the embankment. It was called the protagonists before it was called Cain and Abel. And I was walking along the embankment. Ah! Jumped in the air. Got it. Cain and Abel. It meant a rewrite because everybody's name had to be changed to Cain or to Abel. It meant a complete rewrite. Not a big deal, but it, it took. But when it was the prota- protagonists, one was Polish, one was American, but different names. And so that when the title came, that had needed a rewrite. So titles can come. They might come. I might get in the car now and get a title for the next book. I might not get it for a year. But they make it sell, don't they? Surely. I think the title is important. I've had a lot of comments from other authors about the first of the Clifton Chronicles, Only Time Will Tell. A lot of authors have said, wow, that's a title I wish I had for one of my books. And I, I can't honestly remember when Only Time Will Tell came into the mind. Sometimes it comes in the book. While you're writing a sentence, you write Only Time Will Tell, and you think, oh, that's the title. Silly, silly, that's the title. And you grab it. And I remember uh, a set of short stories um, I wrote uh, to cut a long story short was at a hairdresser. This girl was nattering on. She said, well, Jeff, to cut a long story short, stop. I said, that's it. That's my next title for my next set of short stories. Now, as I was saying, she said. (laughs) (laughs) Let's have some more music. What's our next track? We now move on to arguably the greatest single talent I've seen on stage. And I've seen the great ballet dancers. I've seen the great opera singers. But as a sheer entertainer, and that's a careful, I'm choosing that word carefully. As a sheer entertainer, I've never seen anyone outdo Sinatra. And when I was asked to choose which Sinatra song, I thought, well, I'll go for my way. But no, no, that's just a cliche. (laughs) Uh, I saw him seven times. I saw him twice in um, Vegas. I saw him once in New York. Uh, and I saw him, I think, every performance he gave. Uh, I saw him every turning up. And then the American ambassador very kindly invited Mary and myself to join him for dinner at the embassy after the last performance. And uh, what a remarkable man. I watched him. I asked to go to rehearsal, which he kindly allowed, evidently very unusual. Uh, I was literally sitting in a 700, 800-seat theater on my own. What he taught me which would apply for a writer, a ballet dancer, a player of the violin, any job you do, any job you do. He was the ultimate professional. What you saw on the stage you thought was casual. You thought was him just strolling about, chatting to a violinist or to the pianist or to his conductor and saying, what number should we do next? He knew very well what number he was going to do next. The whole thing was absolutely plotted to a six second. Now, I saw him when uh, Grace Kelly introduced him and then Grace Kelly went into the box to watch him perform. And he came through the the Royal Philharmonic. He'd taken the whole orchestra, the Ranger and the Sinatra with the Royal Philharmonic. And he walked through and people saw him coming and they started clapping and then they started cheering. And he was stopping chatting to the violinist or to the cello player. And and I knew exactly, because I'd seen the rehearsal, I knew exactly what the old blighty was doing. And then he walked up to the microphone and he paused. And they're now cheering, cheering, cheering. And then he walks up to uh, where she's, she's sitting above him in the box. And she, he just held his head up for a split second and everyone goes silent. And he said, you make me feel so young. And the place just went berserk. <laughs> so you make me feel so young by Frank Sinatra. You're listening to 20 Questions with Jeffrey Archer. 
Let's go back, Jeffrey. Question number 14. If you met the 18-year-old Jeffrey Archer, what would you think and what would you say? Well, I would say, for God's sake, slow down. For God's sake, don't think everybody thinks uh, what you're doing is right or, you know. I was terribly uh, energetic, bumptious and jumping around and, like, I was... uh, I was called Jumping Bean at school. That was my nickname. One of my nicknames was Jumping Bean. And I don't regret that. I mean, energy is very important. Uh, You need energy if you're going to succeed. But I wish I hadn't believed I would succeed at everything and do everything properly. And I've made so many mistakes in my life. But I've had a wonderful life and I'm not complaining. So I'd say to the new 18-year-old, cool it a bit, Jeff. (laughs) Fifteen, what's the best thing about being older and wiser? Nothing. I can't think of anything that has a joy. I mean, I, I, I'd, I'd sort of like to... I wish if I could get a chance to speak to our Lord, and I think it's not likely to happen, I would say to him, can we please all go to 70 and then start going back down again and then die, or even 60, then you get 120 years, even 50, get 100 years, and you go up to 50, stop and go all the way back down again. And then with all the experience you've got up to 50, you take advantage of it on the way down. So that by the time you get to 20, you really can have a damn good time. <laughs> so that's my criticism. No, I, there are very few joys. I mean, obviously, two lovely grandchildren. Uh, but basically, I sit and think, I wish I was 20 years younger. I'm not complaining. I'm having an amazing life. I've still got the energy. I'm still producing the books. But there isn't a lot of joy in being old. No. Here's number 16. Um, when were you starstruck? Have you ever been starstruck? Possibly the Sinatra meeting? Do you know, I would say having met Elvis Presley, having met Frank Sinatra, having met Muhammad Ali, when he was Muhammad Ali, when he was Cassius Clay and not Muhammad Ali. I don't think I was ever starstruck until I met Mandela. I did feel with him I was in the presence of a giant. I did feel with him... I did admire so much the fact that when he came out of jail, he didn't stand in that cauldron of a stadium and say, kill every white man you see, which he, God knows, he might well have thought. But instead he said, we must now live in peace together. We must govern this country with the people who live here. We must behave like so. What what an amazing man. So he very kindly invited me to... I have lunch with him at the uh, the embassy here in London. And I think, yes, I was tongue-tied and starstruck. Can I just ask you about something very personal now? And uh, you suffered prostate cancer, Yes, indeed. Tell me about that. You should go and be tested. My testing, I got to 6.2. And my wife, of course, who was running then, running uh, Adam Brooks Hospital, which was an amazing hospital, said, uh, this is not, you must... Uh, be checked. So I did all the check, and they said, if it gets out of the colon area, you will die. So I had the full operation. I had the whole lot out, uh, and I had a lovely note from my surgeon saying, dear Jeffrey, you may die in the next 10 years, but it ain't going to be cancer, uh, because he saved me from that. So I would say to all people between 50 and 70 listening to this program, if you haven't been tested, go and be tested. 70% of you will be cleared. Another 10 to 20% will be told, don't need you at the moment. But don't die because you haven't been tested, idiots. And this is particularly to black people. Black people are more prone to prostate cancer than white 
people. So, black people listening to this program, if you're over 50, go and be tested. That is my message. I've done it. It wasn't a pleasant operation. Lasted four and a half hours. I had two very unpleasant weeks. I was back to normal in the third week. So, it's not a lot to make a fuss about. So, that any men listening to this program, do the sensible thing. I want you to live. We've been told. Here's question number 17 to Geoffrey Archer. It's a complete day off, just to yourself. Will you read a book? Will you watch a film? What will you do? You're not working. It's just a Well, I get up day. and read in the morning. I do from six to eight. Um, Who do you read? Pretty well every morning. Uh, well, I was reading a classic this morning. I've started going back and doing them all again. And, of course, they're classics because they're classics. Uh, and so the last three years I've been reading almost anything uh, that falls into that category. And I was doing The Scapegoat by Daphne du Maurier this morning, which is just a wonderful story. I think she's a fine, fine storyteller. I'd like a light breakfast. I'd then like to go to cricket. I'd like to see England play Australia uh, at Lords. I'd like to have a decent seat so I can see it properly. Uh, after cricket, that would end at six. I would uh, then want to go to the theatre. If I had a choice above anything on earth, I'd want to see something at the National Theatre or the Royal Shakespeare Company. Uh, a great I've seen over the last 40 years, I suppose I've seen 200 of the great performances. There's hardly, I've seen Olivier right through to the modern day, uh, Gilgood, Guinness, Redgrave, Richardson, right through to the day. And I'd like a quiet dinner of uh, shepherd's pie. Uh, in somewhere like Rules, which is an old traditional English restaurant, and then I'd be quite happy to die. <laughs> Here's number 18. If you could live a year of your life again, Geoffrey, which year would that be? I think it would be um, the last year at Oxford when I ran for Oxford and for Britain and got married and <laughs> did all of that. In, Big year. And it was, that was probably the biggest year of my life in that sense. That, uh, but you don't realise it, of course, until you reach... I'm now 74. You don't realise it until you reach this age. Those were great moments. You kind of take them for granted or you kind of think that's part of the deal and you don't know you're going to die because, of course, you're not going to die. That's 50, 60 years away. How can you possibly know that? That doesn't come into your reckoning until considerably later. So most of us, I suspect, look back and say, wow, I didn't realise what a good time that was or how lucky I was or how privileged I was. I, I'm aware now in old age that uh, how, what a privileged and lucky life I've had. I'm very aware of it because I see what well, I read every day in the paper of people dying of tragic diseases at a young age and think, wow, Jeffrey, you've been lucky. That could have been you. And some of them, nothing to do with the human being in the sense that they got it, they die, and there's nothing, they, nothing uh, the best doctor on earth could have done to save them. Well, then you think, wow, I am lucky. Penultimate question, number 19. What does the future hold for Geoffrey Archer? Well, it seems unlikely that I will captain the England cricket team, which has been my lifelong desire. Uh, that I've been a total failure. <laughs> uh, the Clifton Chronicles have been such fun. Uh, number six and number seven still have to be written. Uh, so that's a challenge in itself. I've decided to write a, write a set of short stories immediately after the Clifton Chronicles. But I'll then be 78, Rob, so I think you'll have to ask me again then. Though what I'm surprised by, now I've reached that stage in my life where I read the obituaries to see how old the people are when they die. And this morning it was 94, 79 and 78. But it's been 
averaging around 82, 83. So I think, I hope, I hope, I hope I've got a few more years yet because I've got a lot to do. Last question, number 20. What's your motto? I think I believe uh, above all things in loyalty. Uh, That's why I think I'm so privileged in having so many friends, been married for 49 years, and I have so many friends passionate about uh, friendship and loyalty. And uh, I think if you're lucky enough to go through life with friends, you're very lucky indeed. I feel sorry for people who are either cynical or belittlers or spend their life being unpleasant, and there are a lot of them around. I find that very sad indeed. Give people the benefit of the doubt, you know, do the best you can, and if you fail, stand up and say, I failed, I'm not not really good enough. I've had a lot of failures and one or two successes, and I've had a very wonderful life, and I'm a wonderful wife and a wonderful family. I'm a very lucky person. Last piece of music. Last piece of music. Uh, I'm sentimental about this because, again, I, you know, I was thinking this morning, should I give them a bit of Mozart? Should I throw in the Alleluia chorus? Should I, you know, what, is it, what does it tell you about me? I love those things, and I, 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 of course I realise that Mozart's a genius. Of course I did. But I'm an entertainer. I don't pretend I can win the Nobel Prize. So I have to, with my music, let you know the things that really thrill me. And so uh, I've chosen because I invested in it as well, in the bodyguard. I invested money in the bodyguard. Uh, I, I have uh, chosen Whitney Houston. Uh, I will always love you. Geoffrey Archer, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Rob. Thanks for listening to this 20 Questions podcast. And there are many more where that came from. And thanks to Geoffrey Archer too. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.